You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Last Saturday, I went to see the Stable Boys Improv Troupe at Talking Horse Theatre. As always, they were hilarious. And as I stood in the line for a cocktail during intermission, I was marvelling with the person next to me about my continual astonishment at the level of artistic talent that is packed into Columbia and mid-Missouri. The Stable Boys are often funnier than Saturday Night Live. I see actors on stage here who I know could hold their own on Broadway. I hear local singers and musicians who regularly perform around the world. We have visual artists whose work is in national collections and we have festivals to which people travel to from overseas. And it's all right here on our doorstep. I always feel incredibly lucky. In the second act of today's show, we get an exciting sneak peek at this year's True False Film Fest with the directors of music and art installation and hopefully a couple of programmers, although they were up late last night, so we don't know at this point if they'll be here. But for the first act of today's show, we're going to visit Boonville. Not the Boonville of 2020, but rather the Boonville of 1946. A time when a person of colour did not travel far from home without a copy of the Negro Motorist Green Book. The book was first published in 1937 and was a listing of establishments that welcomed people of colour. The book was based on the recommendations made by Victor H. Green, an African-American postal worker in Harlem, who used his own experiences and those of his fellow postal union workers to help travellers in the New York metropolitan area. The book eventually expanded to cover the entire nation, with 20,000 books being printed annually at its peak and sold at black churches, the Negro Urban League and Esso gas stations. The Green Book inspired a movie in 2018 and a documentary in 2019. But before that, it inspired a Kansas City playwright, Michelle Tyrene Johnson, who back in 2015 wrote The Green Book Wine Club Train Trip. And it is this play, opening at Talking Horse Productions tonight, which takes us back to the Boonville of the 1940s. And here to tell us more about the play is actor Carla Teague, along with Talking Horse Productions artistic director Adam Bretsky. Welcome to the show, Carla and Adam. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Let me start by saying how much I love this play. It is funny, poignant, provides a really well-delivered history lesson, reminds us of what women of colour have had to endure and the power of female friendships. Carla, is this a dream play to be in? Yes, it is. I mean, I was just really excited when I found out that they were able to do a a play for women of color. And in the play was just such a strong sense of womanhood and not only being a woman, but being a woman of color. And so, yes, it was a dream one for me. So set the scene for us and tell us how the play opens and what we know about the five women we meet at the outset of the play. So it takes place on a, um, we're on a train trip (laughs) and we are going on a wine trip. So it's like a wine trip and a book club. And the five women, or they're just talking about things that's going on in their lives and just drinking wine and enjoying their trip. 
the lead, Marie, which is in there, she's going, you know, writing something and putting some things together, doing some research because she's getting prepared for her grandmother's party. So so what they're doing is just kind of talking about all those things and putting all that stuff together. And while we're on the way, we're laughing and we're joking and some things take place and then we poof and then we go to another time. So there are, Marie, the lead character, is a librarian. Yes. And then she's with her friends, uh, Sage, who's a lawyer, Alicia, who's a beautician, mm-hmm. Tony, who's a wine store owner. Have I got them all? I feel like I'm missing mm-hmm. somebody there. That's all. And, and, Lynn, oh, and Lynn, Lynn, who's a librarian, a librarian as well. Friends. Yes. And then in scene two, the scene dramatically changes. Marie steps off the train at the Katie Depot in Boonville and through some wrinkle in time, finds herself back in 1946. And we're introduced to four completely different women. Mm-hmm. Take us briefly through scene two in terms of who we meet in scene two. So when she goes back, the first person that she does meet is Bertha. That's well, that's who I play. And um, Bertha has a, a motherly type of this disposition. She's loving and let me help you. I consider her, yeah, like a rescuer. You know, anybody that sees a lost puppy, she will pick them up and take them home with her. And then once we get into the brothel scene. Boarding um, house. The boarding house. <laughs> Slash. Slash, bro. <laughs> when we get back into the boarding house, then you have the other ladies there. Lucy, which is one of the ladies that um, ladies of the evening. And, <laughs> and as well as uh, Cotton Blue, another one. And then we meet Henrietta. And Henrietta is also Bertha's lover. And so, the co-owner of the boarding house. And the house. co-owner of the, bro- uh, the boarding house. <laughs> <laughs> So we have these two these two scenes. It's kind of a, a, a complex one for the audience to follow in that you've got two different time zones. And it, it's pretty obvious when they're on the train, it's 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they're back in time, it's it's 1946. And so you kind of travel back and forth mm-hmm. with Marie. Now, you all play two characters. Two characters. So there's only five of you in the play, but there are nine characters. <laughs> Absolutely. So Marie stays the same. Marie she stays is the same. She yeah. is the same person throughout, but you all have to take uh, two roles. So looking at those two roles that you play, your Bertha in the past mm-hmm. um, and your Marie's librarian friend Lynn. in the present. Mm-hmm. Do you think you have similar personality traits in those two characters? No, I don't think so. I, I think Lynn is a a mature woman yes but she's a librarian i think it's a total different atmosphere i just think she's just trying to hang out and and enjoy herself because in the roles i I doesn't seem like i'm trying to mother anybody but i do enjoy my friendship with my other fellow librarian which is marie and we became we befriended each other so it's a total different situation when you go back bertha is more of a motherly type of figure and that she's, you know, making sure everybody's okay, the business is taken care of. And so that's the difference on the two roles right there. So, no, I don't think they're the same. You're kind of the gentle person in both roles. You're mm-hmm. the one that wants to ask Marie more questions. You're the listener. And it seems like you're the listener in the past as well. Well, I think in, you know, reading the script, you know, her other friends are not so in tuned on what she's doing. And so I'm protecting her, just like I'm almost protecting her in the past as well, like making sure that it's okay. Tell me a little more. I am interested. You are doing something that is good as well in the back. Like, I'm going to make sure you get home. You're taking, you know, you're taking care of. So those are the two similarities that, you know, with between those two characters. 
Now, I know you aren't in charge of casting. That job fell to director Hepzibah Neem. But as well as the role that you play, when you went to read for the show, did you go for that role or were you reading for any of the roles and you got cast in that one? Well, I did not go for that role, but there's a funny story <laughs> to that. So another fellow actor, he sent me a message. He said, I, there's a play I want you to read. And I said, and I don't want to tell you what part you should go for. He said, but I just want you to read it. And then you text me back and tell me what person that you should be. So I read it. I sent him a message. I said, I'm Bertha. And he's like, yes. <laughs> so that's what it is. I just went and I just auditioned. So whatever cast role she put me in, I would have I would have took it with no problem whatsoever. But fortunately, I ended up becoming Bertha and Lynn. Well, it seems like it's, it's a good fit. <laughs> now, I didn't realize until Adam told me, and then you said this morning, that Three of you are in the play are first time actors. Three of them are not first, you. Not me. <laughs> and not not Simone. But um there are three others, yes. They're all first time debuts. And yes, they're excited, they're ready to go. So yeah, this is gonna be their first time. That's tricky. I mean there's a lot of things that you you learn stagecraft wise when you've been in multiple plays, so that puts a little bit of extra pressure on you and Simone as they're longtime mm. actors to help them them along. Yeah. What are the challenges of working with first-time now, actors? I'm just wanting to let you know. I am the <laughs> oldest one back there. So as far as even with Simone, I'm always mothering everybody. Come on, girls. Let's get together. Let's get going. So, yes, it's like a helping them, guide them. They look for me for guidance. So I guess I'm just kind of like still playing in my role. And it never stops. Because, <laughs> of course, you know, one of the actresses is uh, my daughter. So I'm always constantly coaching her and getting her together. And then they all just kind of tend to talk to me and say hey how do we do this what do we need to do so yeah I'm constantly coaching and trying to show them their way you know so I suspect as a first-time actor and Adam I think you mentioned this the other day that people tend to learn their lines and they think if they've learned their lines then they've they've got the play down but actually you need to learn the whole play is that, is that when you're doing coaching for actors, is that something they struggle with? Yeah, so something I always talk to about uh, when I, whenever I take in first-time actors is they come in and they have their entire script highlighted with everything that they're supposed to do. And I always joke with them and say, oh, so you think you only have to learn that part of the script. But the reality is, especially in a script like this where you have five characters all going back and forth, you need to know what everybody's saying and where everybody's going at any given time. So if something falls off, you know how to correct that and get it back on track. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, that's, that's your that's role the, as well. That's one of the things I told them. I said, girls, you got to know the whole <laughs> script. You know, I was talking to my daughter. She's like, I got my lines. Okay, so I shot one out to her. It's like, wait a minute, where am I at? You got to know the whole play. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what do you love about the play, Carla? I love about the play because it, uh, it depicts about how African-American women are of today and how we talk about our culture now. And then it goes back in time and how we how we work together and how we interact and, and we and how we did things back then. It was a, it's a total contrast. And I kind of like that. So the kind of I want the audience to kind of get an understanding of how we are as it's a different culture and it's a difference of how we do things than how other people do things or other people of different nationalities do things. So I want them to kind of show the difference. You know, how we was back then, what we had to go through back then. 
and what we're going through now it's just a slight it's it's, it's better improvement but it's still we still go through some some discrimination and and going through things it's just it's not as blatant as it was back in 1946 right for me i love language and so i love how the play highlights how language is always evolving mm-hmm. and how we don't have to go very far back or forward in time to be kind of incomprehensible to each other or sound really antiquated Mm -hmm. and how vocabulary differences can really be very alienating. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about some of those moments in the play because they really the ones that made me laugh out loud. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yes, there is some uh, cultural things that as African-American women, we do say to each other, but it'd be in a joking manner. And um, the word you know, the N-I-G-G-A word um, that that has been always thrown around and, you know, said in a carefree, careless. But yet it is kind of difficult because I, as my, my white friends would say, you know, but you all say this word and, and you say it in a joking manner. And I was like, yeah, but we always tell them, but you can't say it. And then, <laughs> and then you know, it's, so it's a whole total different way. It's just what how we were raised, how we were brought up and it's, it's just different on how we understand where we coming from. So if you go on the train station and these girls are saying, well, bitch, da-da-da-da-da, and beep, da-da-da-da-da, and we don't mean it in a harm way. We just mean it as a joking way, not to, you know, hurt anybody's feelings or anything like that. And the same back back in 1946. Same thing, you know. It's we kind of harsher and kind of harsh and cold, but yet there's still that love there. It's things like when Marie first arrives back in 1946 and she meets you on the platform station and then she kind of says, can I borrow your cell phone? And you say, I can't sell you a phone, sugar, or something. You know, you, mm-hmm. the, this idea of a cell phone and then other things that come up are like she asks you, you for an ibuprofen and you're like an ibu what an ibu what um, yes one of my favorites is she says oh we we hang out and right. and that's a, a new phrase in 1946 that nobody's heard before and she says hang out of what sugar right. <laughs> <laughs> talking about her man that they hang out together she's like what do you hang out of yeah she was about the aids crisis and, and, and she said ages age age crisis <laughs> um and then at one point marie says repeats the beyonce line of if you likes it it should have put a ring on it mm-hmm. and, and then she's like, like mm, i don't know what you're saying <laughs> yeah and we're all looking at her when she says these little things of bernie and i'm like and we're like what <laughs> I, th- I think my favorite talks about feminism and uh i don't know if it's you or no it's henrietta it's henrietta says i don't feminist. know anything about this femi mess yeah that femi mess <laughs> that's one of my favorite lines too uh, yeah <laughs> They're so sweet when they appear, but it just really makes you realize how much language changes um, over time. Also, you have to understand, too, and it's also about the education as well, where Marie is educated, and these women are not saying that they are not intelligent women, but they just didn't have the opportunities back then as Marie did in 2017. So it's a difference. On that theme of language, and you touched on it just before, in this early in the second scene, Bertha refers to the coloured porters. And Marie, with 21st century sensibilities, winces at her choice of words. And I think that has so much resonance today. The way we refer to people, mm-hmm. whether it's differently abled or whether it's race or gender, mm-hmm. it's increasingly precarious and it's so easy to get it wrong and to offend mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, Marie is talking to Bertha about her choice of language when referring to African-Americans. And she says, 
But you mean what do black people call each other? It can get complicated, mm -hmm. and that's on a good day. <laughs> Are these conversations you feel like you're always having with people? Yeah, I mean, even now to this day, I mean, people question, like, you say this word, but what word do you want me? And some of my white friends, would you prefer me to call you black? Or would you want me, what, what word, because they, they don't want to offend. Right. Um, back then, colored was the word to use, okay? It was okay. Black people was okay being called colored. Now, we're not okay being called colored. We want to be called African-Americans or black. And so it kind of time changed. And that's when she come back, she's like, why are you saying colored? We're not colored. Because color was derogatory. When I was learning about it in school, in African-American history, it, now it was it's derogatory. But back then, it was okay to say that. You know, that's because that's why she said, would you rather use Negro? You know? Right. So, yeah. So we have so many different things, but the, back in 1946, things were acceptable. And then back up to 2017, things change and it's not. So it's just like the time of change. I'm really surprised. I want to see what happens in the next 10 years. and <laughs> see what word is acceptable and what's not. So the play really highlights the difficulty of uh, African-American women living during the Jim Crow era. And at one point, Marie touches on that about how she's kind of glad she lives in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Some things are easier, but some things are harder. How does the play make you feel about living in the 21st century? I mean, yeah, I, I believe that now it's a lot better. You know, I talked to my mother, and my mother is, was born in 1945. So she's been through segregation, so she knows how that feels like. And so she knows that I have better opportunities than what she had. And she said it was hard back then where you, you had to beware and be careful. You didn't know who to trust. And so it was very difficult back then. But now I think we have a lot more opportunities. I think people are more aware. I think people are more conscientious. I mean, we had a black president. So, you know, we were moving ahead. So, but is it still there? Of course. I don't think discrimination will probably ever disappear. But at least I know that we're taking steps of, uh, forward to making it a lot better. The playwright is Michelle Tyreen Johnson. She's a lawyer, journalist, and diversity consultant who lives just up the road in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Has she been involved in the production at all? Does she know that you're doing it? She does. In fact, she will be here tonight. <gasps> Um, I know. As, as <laughs> no uh, pressure. <laughs> yeah. As part of a special fundraiser, we partnered up with Alpha Kappa Alpha here in town, which is a, a charitable sorority, and they have uh, purchased the tickets for tonight's performance. And as part of tonight's performance, we're doing a talk back with the actors as well as with the playwright Michelle Tyrene Johnson. She has not been involved, and I think that's by choice. I typically find working with original plays that the playwrights really want to see how we translate their words on the page, especially with a play that's still in development. They want to take a look at it, see how it reads to the audience, see how the audience reacts to it before they make any changes, because right now it feels like this is it. It's perfect. I, I love everything about it. And then when you actually see it up on stage and you watch the audience react to it, then you can say, let me look at some changes. The only thing I and I've been in communication a little bit with Michelle. Um, and one of the things she wanted to highlight is she said, I want to make sure that the play is not just a comedy. You know, I want to make sure that we go for the heart, that mm -hmm. these characters are real, that they connect with one another, that it's not just played for a time-traveling 
you know, mm-hmm. Bill and Ted's excellent adventure type of show. <laughs> and and I think they've achieved that quite well. I think that this story is really about the actors and and the characters and their connection to one another. And it's really about Marie's discovery of her own secret family history. I mean, it is very beautifully written. I mean, and that poignancy and that friendship and the sweetness on the hearts is, is just there on the lines on the page. Right. It's, it's written into it. So how do you feel about having the playwright in the house tonight, Carla? Um, I feel very nervous, but yet... I, this is how I'm thinking about it. I'm going to just perform just as if she's just a normal audience member, just like anybody else. And I'm just going to do what I'm, what I'm trained to do. So <laughs> a lot of the girls are nervous and we want this play to go off on a, uh, without a hitch. So we want to be, we wanted to portray her play to the best to how she written it. So that's what we're going to do. So there are no tickets available tonight then. It's a sold out show. It is. Yes, that's right. So we do have six other performances for the rest of the run, including tomorrow night and Sunday as a matinee. Um, And then we have Thursday through Sunday of next week as well. And tickets are available still for those performances. But no Michelle at those performances. So she's only going to be there tonight. No, she she has a lot of things to do, as you just read off a lot of her titles. So (laughs) she is a very, very busy woman. Do you get the sense then that she is still making changes to the play? I mean, it's five years old now. Yeah, you know, she's the play has been workshopped quite a bit. I know that they've done some staged readings for it. Um, I have not actually talked to her about how she feels about its current state and whether it's done or not. So that might be a great question that we can ask tonight. Well, before we close, we've got a few minutes left. Adam, um, this is the first play in the Talking Horse Productions 2020 lineup. It's your first full year of the Rishara Knight and Adam Bretsky <laughs> lineup. Ed yeah. Hansen's last show was the end of last year. Yeah. Um, I think that many of us are thrilled that your focus this year is that women are center stage. It's your year of the woman. That's right. Tell us about that decision. Yeah, so the decision for us is, and this is something that's very relevant in our current culture and especially in in our market and our, our work. Uh, if you look at the Oscars most recently, we had no female directors nominated for Best Director. Mm-hmm. Um, it is much, much harder for a movie or a play or anything else that is written by a woman to get produced. It's hard for them to find funding. And as Rashara and I started planning the season, we said, well, what can we do here in Little Columbia, Missouri to make a difference? And we said, well, let's start. Let's, let's start by going out and finding plays written by women that feature leading roles for female identifying actors. And so that's what we've built this year around. It's all women playwrights and it's all featuring uh, leading roles for female identifying actors. And even the musicals, you had an, an extra rule for the musicals that also had to be the score written by a woman too. Right, it had to be composed by a woman. And what, uh, what you may not know is that's incredibly difficult. The list is very, very shockingly short. Right. Mm-hmm. Carla, as an African-American female actor, how much of a struggle is it to find productions that are written for you? <laughs> very difficult. And I was so excited that they had had an opportunity for me. And plus, you know, I'm an older woman, so, you know, there's some things I can play and some things I cannot. So I am just like flabbergasted and excited that Talking Horse Productions was able to put on a play for African-American women. I'm excited. What else would you like to see produced in Columbia? I would like to see uh, Raisin in the Sun. 
That's one of my favorites. And I'm I'm going to try to audition for another one called Sister Act. That's one of my favorites as well. So I'm going I'm going to be auditioning this weekend for that one as well. But yes, I would like to see a little bit more. Raising in Summer is one of my favorites. You know, I won some state championships on that one. So I'm excited. If I think we do Raising in Sun, it'll be one of my favorites. And I know that some of the other theaters are doing some other more African-American. So I'm thrilled. So they, they're, they're coming out and I'm excited. Well, great. Well, I'm so pleased for this year's season at Talking Horse. I think you've got some really great productions lined up and I'm excited for everybody to see the Green Book Wine Club train trip. I have to think about which order <laughs> the a lot of words. go. <laughs> My first act guest today have been actor Carla Teague and Talking Horse Productions artistic director Adam Bretsky. Their production of the Michelle Tyreen Johnson play, The Green Book Wine Club Train Trip, opens tonight at Talking Horse Theatre and runs for two weekends. Tickets are $17 and showtime is 7.30 in the evening and 2pm on Sundays. You can buy advanced tickets online at talkinghorseproductions.org or you can give them a call on 573-607-1740. But as Adam just said, tonight's show is fully sold out. So if you want to get tickets, uh, you need to go for Saturday evening, Sunday matinee, or next week between Thursday and Sunday. Thank you so much, Carla and Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Break a leg. Thank you. Thank you much. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, we'll be diving into the upcoming True False Film Fest with some programmers, the Fest's music director, and art director. It's going to be a full and lively studio. Back in a mo. And welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. When it comes to festivals, it's hard to top Edinburgh in Scotland, which has over 20 festivals every year. But for a city the size of Columbia, we punch well above our weight. Roots and Blues, Art in the Park, Unbound Book Festival, Mizzou International Composers Festival, Heritage Festival, Como Shorts Film Festival, Dismal Niche Experimental Music Festival, and the one that has really put Columbia, Missouri on the international map, the True False Film Fest. It all started back in 2004 with a dream of creating a film event celebrated what was then a new wave of cinematic documentaries. There were just three venues that first year. The teeny ragtag cinema on North 10th Street, the Blue Note and the Missouri Theatre prior to its big renovation. Even in year one, Fest founders David Wilson and Paul Sturtz managed to get some heavy-hitting directors to come to Columbia for their nascent Fest. People such as Kevin MacDonald, director of the climbing documentary Touching the Void, and Sarah Price, who directed The Yes Men. In the Fest's second year, 50 directors came to Columbia and ticket sales climbed to 6,500. By year four, they needed 250 volunteers and by its 10th anniversary in 2013, ticket sales were up to 37,500. Last year, the Fest sold 55,000 tickets to 15,000 people. And now here we are in 2020, about to witness the 17th annual True False Film Fest, where Columbia once again is turned into an international center for excellence in documentary filmmaking. It is my favorite weekend of the year. And I am so thrilled that the studio is full of the people who are making the fest happen this year. Music director Martin Camus, art installation director Duncan Binvoidel, and one of the programmers, Janelle Augustin, is here to talk about the festival. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for having us. I'm, I know, Janelle, you were up until the tiny hours of the morning putting together <laughs> the grid that we're all going to see tonight of what happens when. So thank you so very much for being here. I hope you've had sufficient coffee. Yeah. <laughs> 
I am awake. <laughs> so where do we start? Let's start with um, the films. And I guess, well, let's start with whether you're counting the days down to when the festival starts or when all the toys are put away. What, what's your, like, <laughs> what day do you look forward to? The start or the end of the festival? I'm looking forward to the start, for sure. <laughs> what about you, Martin? The start. The start, but yeah, I'm also looking forward to the end. <laughs> <laughs> and Duncan, you've got a lot of things to put in place, I guess. I take it one day at a time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the films. The program of films was released on Wednesday, and tonight you released the full schedule of what's on when and in which venue. I think that's tomorrow. Oh, I thought it was Friday. Okay, it's tomorrow. I beg your pardon. So uh, let's start with, um, tell me what three films you are most excited about and why. Sure. I'm most excited about Time by Garrett Bradley. It is a beautiful film shot in black and white. It takes place over the course of 21 years as a family fights to free their father from incarceration at Louisiana's Angola prison. It's um, heartbreaking, stunning, and also has like a beautiful finish. So I really recommend that film. I'm really excited about that work being here. I've been a big fan of her work for many years. So that's a big highlight. And then another one, we have the debut of Ursula Liang's film, Down a Dark Stairwell, which is about the police-involved shooting of Akai Gurley in uh, East New York's Prink Houses. It's a housing sort of tenement. It really, when I used to live in New York, it really sort of sparked that city because it was a police shooting not between white and black communities, but Chinese and and black communities. It's a really thoughtful, um, hard-hitting journalistic documentary that I definitely recommend everyone go see. Super smart. And then the last film, one of my sort of personal kind of favorites is like any sort of architecture or science documentaries. So the one that I'm really recommending everyone go see is A Machine to Live In. And that is the world premiere of that uh, film. It's gorgeous. It takes place in the capital of Brazil. And it is all about uh, that city's monuments to aliens and the future and all these crazy cults. It's gorgeous. Could not recommend it enough. Okay, I think time is on my on my short list. It's always difficult to tell at this point because you've only got the little short descriptions and it's trying to trying to work out. I put a short list together and then once the bigger descriptions come out and the and the schedule right. comes out, whether we piece it all together. So tell us a bit about the process of choosing films. I know the majority is selected from other festivals and your relationships with documentary film circuit, and then you also have an open submission process. What do you think people don't understand about how the fest is created? I think actually a lot of it is our own personal interest as viewers, as well as I really think it's important that we look at all the submissions. A number of film festivals have more than 50% of the films in the festivals be solicitations, um, which are just sort of private invitations to artists that we know. Um, Here at True False, we really try to be equitable and watch all the submissions first and then consider the solicitations and, again, as you're saying, the relationships. Uh, And I think that that makes us stand out. I'm not sure that that's something that the average festival goer knows. That also makes us distinct. What percentage of the open submissions make it into the festival? It's a good question. I think that our programming fellows would know that better because they do all the like hard number crunching. But I would say we have a number of returning alumni and people who um, have participated in our rough cut retreats. So we really try to support artists across you know all these different points in their career rather than um, simply project by project. 
I must confess that I have rather vanilla tastes um, when it comes <laughs> to <right>. documentaries. <laughs> and I like to curate my weekend with a couple of films where I get to be truly outraged when I just walk out kind of just angry mm. and in tears. And I like to have films that leave me feeling warm and fuzzy. It's a feel-good weekend and a few where I just get to be in someone else's life sure. for a little while. So given that... What would you recommend for me? All right, for the vanilla <laughs> lovers, <laughs> uh, I think Boy State is a great choice. Um, that is by, I'm just pulling it up yeah, here. Yeah, I have that on um, the list. Great. So it's by uh, Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. Uh, this film is really fun. It's basically like West Wing and uh, Wet Hot American Summer. Uh, I think that's like the perfect combination of what this film is. It takes place over, I think, the course of a week to two weeks in um, Austin, Texas's capital. And it's sort of a summer camp for boys, um, high school boys, who are really interested in civic discourse and competition. They're fiercely competitive in this film. And over the course of that summer camp, they um, have this mock election for um, the title that is termed um, governor. And so what's really fascinating fascinating is they're putting on these elections, but they actually have no platform. It's not really about issues in this film. It's all about the political process and sort of what charisma do you need and how do you create a base of supporters? And so you see the boys sort of asking for people's votes and it's like, what do you stand for? And they're like, uh, no homework and pizza and um, yeah, all kinds of silly things. So that's a riot. Definitely go check that one out. Other... What should I be outraged at? What's my outrage film? Mm. There's always a lot of outrage. I have to of manage course. my outrage because otherwise <laughs> you're just too exhausted on Monday morning. <laughs> I think for outrage... But also light, or just outrage and like darkness, dark. Oh uh, yeah, not too dark. No animals or children. Okay, okay. All right. So I think for outrage, with like a nice twist at the end, is feels good, man. That film also the director Arthur Jones. He's from Missouri. He's from Jeff City. So that's really exciting. He also like specially requests that the film show at the Blue Note because I think he like used to see concerts there as a teen. So that's just really fun. This film is about the history of the meme Pepe the Frog, and so it. It's really fascinating. Like I learned so much watching this film, um, but it's really fascinating because the image was actually created by this comic book artist in San Francisco who just had like these slacker sort of zines, and then the image got onto MySpace, and then onto 4chan, and then it just totally exploded in a completely demented way. In the alt-right. Right, exactly. And so I think for anyone who is maybe aware of the image but doesn't really understand how it operates or doesn't understand why it operates in that way, it's fun, educational, and uh, there are moments of outrage for sure. And just living in someone's life. Mm. Whose life do I want to hang out in yeah. for a couple of hours or 90 minutes? Right. I think for hanging out in someone's life... I think our most gorgeous film this year is The Metamorphosis of Birds. This is kind of like a buzzy film because in the Berlin Film Festival, this is like one of the only documentaries playing in its competition. It's absolutely stunning images uh, that takes place in a marriage. The man is like at sea and the woman is raising their children at home, but it's got all these gorgeous images of plants and birds and animals and really just gorgeous cinematography throughout. Let's change tack for a minute and talk about another component that people get really excited about, the music. Martin, you are organizing a full-on music festival that could stand on its own as a major event, but you're also dovetailing it into a film festival. So let's start with what are your predictions about which acts will sell the most CDs and go home with the most money in the hat <laughs> donations? That's okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, please bring dollar bills so you can donate during the shows. 
the I'd say the acts that I'm most excited for would be Angel Bat Dawid. Um, she's an artist coming down from Chicago. She's an avant-garde, Afrofuturistic uh, jazz artist who is on the top of most year-end lists of 2019. We're really excited and honored and privileged to have her out here. I'm not, she's pretty wild, don't know exactly what to expect, but I think people are gonna be pretty blown away. Another artist I'm really excited about is Chris Cohen. He's a uh, 70s experimental psychedelic singer-songwriter coming out from uh, Los Angeles. Um, he's worked with a lot of indie greats like Deer Hoof and Ariel Pink as a multi-instrumentalist, but his solo work is something that I, me personally, I've been listening to it um, more than anything else the last year, so I'm really honored to be able to have him out here. So those are two cats that I'm really excited. I just want to jump in and say I'm a big fan of Chris Cohen. I'm personally very excited <laughs> yeah, yeah, for him to be yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a super eclectic lineup. You've got Balkan jazz to the Ozark hinterlands, mm -hmm. big city hip hop to the incredibly beautiful finger guitar of Yasmin Williams, oh, yes. and the moonwalking on a cloud, Tiny Daniel, which I'm kind of intrigued about. <laughs> that was a great description. I, I can't I can't discuss him too much. It's a, he's, yeah, I'm excited to see him. Yeah. <laughs> I listened to his uh, band camp or whatever it was, SoundCloud, wherever it was, it? Yeah, he's, he's very intriguing. What kind of budget do you work with to get such a varied collection of musicians here to Columbia? I won't get into the specifics of that, but I mean, it's, 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 it's decent. It's enough to bring, bring in the tier of artists that can make this fest work. We are by the tip hats that pass around the audience. If you haven't been to True False, um, every film screening is preceded by a 30 minute concert so about 140 concerts in top of the other con the showcases throughout the weekend and the donations definitely help with the budget but luckily I'm given a certain amount of money and I don't have super mainstream tastes so I'm <laughs> able to book people who are under the radar who I actually love like I love Chris Cohen and I had enough money to book them so that's really cool um, for me what is the deal for the musicians do you pay to fly them in or they make their own way here and then they get a stipend plus what they collect at the festival it, it depends on on the musician sometimes we'll do a stipend plus travel or we'll roll it all into the stipend and um, have them book their own travel I'd prefer if they go through our hospitality team because they do a great job and once they get their hotels booked and their flights booked and it calms me <laughs> it locks it in completely it makes it real but yeah we, we do have a budget for for both stipends and travel how much in terms of the whole lineup how much of it is you going out and finding people and people applying to be here we do have a submissions process to be honest we do not take too many um we take a few really we, we had some really quality ones this year um and we did take a, a few of those but I've also been working with the same team for the last three years, which is I think is kind of rare. And we kind of know what we want, what we're looking for, what our holes in the, in the lineup are. A lot of it is less of the music that we listen to in our headbuds, but, but more of like what the their YouTube clips look like, because it is a very performative thing to be playing to an empty room to soundtrack people's entrance into the film screenings. So, um, yeah, we, we would like we would like the, the artists to be as performative as possible or as interesting as possible, like on a visual level as well. It's a huge number of people. So as well as having a 30 minute performance before each film in each venue, you also have, what, 12 concerts 12 that are concerts. happening at various venues, yep. Cafe Berlin, churches all mm -hmm. around downtown. How do you even begin to map that all out? 
I like to stick with themes for the showcases as much as possible. For instance, if, if we take the showcases at Cafe Berlin, Thursday night's kind of a singer-songwriter bill with James Tillman and Kara Louise and Sonny War. And then Friday night, we have an avant-garde jazz bill, kind of an experimental bill in general with Salt Breaker and Angel Bat Dawid, who I mentioned previously, and Tanya Ayer. Um, and then Saturday night, we have a more of a hip-hop-centric lineup with uh, Jay Wood and McKinley Dixon coming out from Virginia and local favorites, Loose Loose. So I try not to make it into a, a hodgepodge of artists as much as possible. I'd like to, if you're trying to catch a certain genre on a certain night, um, I'd suggest to go on our website and see what you like and there's going to be something for you. Yeah, I really looked through the music site because um, I always go for the films. Mm-hmm. Um, but this time, because I knew you were going to be here, I looked through the music and it really altered what I wanted to do during the festival. Oh. I really, really want to see Yasmin Williams. Oh, that's going to be a great show. Um, and she's playing Saturday night at the Sanctuary at the, the Episcopal Church, is that right? Yeah, I might be most excited for, for that, that showcase. Um, that's a free showcase for everyone. It's at the Calvary Episcopal Church um, and it's Yasmin Williams is a really big name in the genre of primitive uh, finger-picking guitar right now, which isn't a huge genre. It's, <laughs> it's pretty small, but she's incredible. <laughs> um, has a really unique lap style playing of guitar. Uh, utilizes the bow in, in there too, and then. Um, Andreas Kopsalis is another virtuosic guitarist um, who was out here last year and he just really blew people away. Has a really unique uh, percussive style of playing the, the guitar. Well, it sound, sounds like he's playing guitar and drums at the same time. Um, we haven't talked to them about this yet, but I would love for them just to go to have a type of a duo instead of having him play back and forth. Um, right. I'd, re- I'd love for them to play one song each a piece back and forth instead of having one person play and then the other person go right after them but yeah i suggest everybody check that out 6 30 on saturday night i think that is is that right yes correct. it's a great time because you really need a break from film at 6 30 on a saturday night so it's a good time yeah, yeah, <laughs> i'm yeah. exhausted well, that, by that yeah, point. we call it the sanctuary <laughs> showcase yeah, for shaking. Yeah. <laughs> although every time i listen to yasmin's music i i I tear up. I mean, it's so moving. Yeah, so if I've wonderful. seen a really difficult movie Saturday afternoon, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to like just not bore my eyes out all yes. through the Yasmin <laughs> Williams concept. So, and then there's also the art festival that is going on. Duncan, the art started out as a backdrop, a way of making the film venues a little more winsome, um, but now it is its own thing. How do you get people's attention amidst all the other clamoring that is going on? That's a great question, uh, and if I had an answer, I'd give it to you. <laughs> I think the uh, our, our goal with the art always is to um, transform downtown Columbia and to um, just kind of create constant visual reminders that you're part of something special, then that if you're walking between any two venues that you're going to see something that encourages that. So I guess the number one rule, I think, for this and everything is just don't be boring and to create as big and captivating and interesting and immersive as stuff as possible and uh, encourage artists to go to, to follow interesting ideas and, um, and see what they end up with. The, uh, it's kind of the one area of the festival where the theme seems the most apparent. This year's theme is foresight. What kind of prompts or things were you looking for from the artists? It's interesting with, uh, I mean, we get these really wonderful themes every year, but I like to kind of hand it off to artists and see what grabs them about it. The way we structure the wording and our, and our call to artists and stuff each year, we do it in a means not to, to box people in, but to kind of give them inspiration to go off of that. So there's, you know, eyesight has been a huge part of it. I think uh, we're 
one of the projects we're doing this year is we're selling tarot deck. So foresight through kind of uh, divination is another has been another huge part of that. I think the most fun part of it is to put these ideas out and then artists uh, returning their ideas with it and just to be really surprised with what they come up with. Like, oh, I, I was not thinking about that. That's kind of the most gratifying thing you can get as a arts facilitator, I think, is to be surprised. And you've also got weather to contend with. So you have no idea at the beginning of March what the weather's going to do. It could be 75 degrees or there could be two feet of snow on the ground. So in terms of all of the outdoor art installations, how do you deal with that component? Oh, <laughs> we're still learning. But uh, <laughs> I think it's to expect the unexpected. And, you know, Missouri always keeps you guessing with what the weather's going to be. I mean, there's been years where we've had we've been able to install stuff in T-shirts and very comfortably operate outside. Last year, we kind of refer to that last year as the year of frozen glove, um, because as we were moving art pieces and st uh, to different places, there was a glove that was completely frozen to one of the trailers, and we tried to pick it up, and it was just stuck there. And it's like, the weather today is sort of g giving me reminders of that, so we try to prepare as best we can for that and um, build in a little bit of extra time to deinstall things in case of you name it. And when the artists are applying, mm -hmm. are they applying for site-specific places? Like, I want my work to go here. Or are you just looking at all of the entries and then you're deciding where things go and therefore you have to maybe discount some things because they wouldn't work in all weather conditions? Um, it's a tricky process. We try to, prior to our uh, call to artists, we or our deadline for that, we try to be as open as possible and communicate with artists as best as we can because it's really, really hard for an artist to imagine the spaces that we have to fill with art. Um, so we work on a vocabulary to sort of explain, like, with the Missouri Theater, an artist a couple years ago said, as we said, oh, it needs to stand in this kind of notch in this corner here. There's going to be a thousand people at a given point and needs to be able to just plug into an outlet. And they said, oh, like a Christmas tree. And that's sort of not to make that art seem kind of small or basic, but it's like that's the defines that's, the space. It defines the bit. space. It defines yeah. the function of it. It's like there is a celebration around it. So it needs to accommodate that. And then when you have it's a little easier with a street closure uh, out in front of the Missouri Theater because it's just it's be big out in the open and we need to be able to have emergency vehicles pass through. Right. <laughs> so if we're working within those parameters, we can. But we're always it's always fun to to take calls from artists and say, well, you know, it might not work here, but what about 13 feet in the air in Alley A? Or <laughs> what about in this venue we didn't know? I mean, what about Jesse Hall? I'm kind of work with people and, 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 and account scaling into certain things that maybe we want it to be even bigger. Maybe it's not something that hangs on a wall, but maybe it's a party space or an artist lounge. Right. Do you have people that return? You have kind of an artistic alum that come back year on year. And how far afield do they come in from? They tend to, it seems a lot of people seem to kind of know the mid-Missouri area, mm -hmm. but I guess you have people from far afield too. We do. Um, one of the returning favorites this year is going to be Newhouse. They're out of uh, Rhode Island and they they specialize in inflatable artwork. They Their first piece they did for us three years ago was called Atmosphere which was about 35 feet tall. It was this immersive inflatable sculpture that had kind of atmosphere, or generated atmosphere in it, and then let light peer through. They're returning this year with another piece called Compound Camera that I've tried to explain several times and always sound like a lunatic, so I invite <laughs> folks to come through, but it is basically a inflatable dome comprised of individual compound cameras, or individual picture hole cameras that 
hard to explain, but if you go inside, it sort of looks like the view of an insect, or mm -hmm. the point of view of an insect, yeah. as best as I've been able to. And that's going to be outside? That's going to be in the Ninth Street closure in front of the Missouri Theater. Janelle, there seems to be a lot of excitement around the shorts this year. You have four mm -hmm. short sessions, Blank, Bock, Rouge, and Rye, featuring 17 shorts, and only one of which includes the only secret screening this year, the Rouge block. Which shorts do you think will be the sleeper hits? If we were going to see one block. I love shorts, so I'm really excited that we're doing these. I think that my favorite uh, shorts program, not because I did it myself, but is because, <laughs> because I think it's the best, is Blanc. We put together this series of shorts from around the world in this program that all look at ceremonies, secret societies, sort of mystical places, and all of these uh, films are absolutely gorgeous. A lot of them are shot on film too, which is really exciting, so very crisp images. And we're going to have our guest, um, the director of Aurora, and also a film that's traveling at other festivals called Pataki, and her name is Everlane. Try her last name. I think it's like Morais, um, and she is um, Brazilian. And her short film Aurora is absolutely incredible. It's um, all silent, and it's just these um, really gorgeous takes of these three uh, Cuban women staring directly at the camera, and it takes place in this dilapidated Cuban cinema. So stunning. She'll be here. She's super talented. And then the other one if I can do another sure. one that I really think is super smart, is um, Bach. And one of the films that's uh, headlining this program is a film that we saw at IDFA in Amsterdam. Um, it's called Good Ended Happily. And it is basically a fictional retelling of the assassination of Osama bin Laden. But it is done with this in Lahore, it's I think Lollywood um, film crew, and they're sort of um, staging this um, raid on the Abbottabad compound, and it's uh, again really black humor, um, but really gorgeous cinematography. And then in that program, um, we actually just added one more film to that program last night, so it now has one, two, three, four, five films in there, and the runtime is 71 minutes. All those films take place uh, internationally, and they look at political how do I say this? Political images from a non-sort of mass media standpoint. It's um, artists kind of making political statements in a creative way. And the other films in there are San Vittore, which takes place in an Italian prison. Shortcuts, which takes place in um, Peru and Ecuador, um, looking at sort of political jargon in a very creative way. I think that one's shot on videotape. We have Up at Night, which takes place, I think, in the Congo. Yeah, in Kinshasa. This is another film that we saw in Amsterdam that I am totally fell in love with. It um, split screen, uh, really whip-smart directing. And then the other one, sorry, it just closed. Don't worry, we're getting, we're getting short on time. I, want, I wanted to ask, um, you know, I always look through the Sundance documentaries and see what I'm excited about to see. And I know that back in the early days, you know, True False Movie wasn't big enough for some of them to come here. But now, like, <laughs> we are the documentary film fest. Why would a documentary director not want? I mean, because there are some movies there that I'm like, I was super excited about seeing as Spaceship Earth, The Cost of Silence, The Fight. Um, but those aren't here. But you do have a lot that come. Do sometimes films get picked up at Sundance and head off into the stratosphere and kind of have to bypass us that you were planning on having here? Uh, no, actually, it's um, much more kind of like business 
related. It happens because films will get bought at Sundance and then the distributor wants to release them online and they don't want to go to film festivals. So uh. they don't apply. That's kind of back to that solicitations conversation we were having earlier. So the films that uh, apply that we were able to go and watch are the films that are in. But there are a number also of films where there are a number of movies that um, release at Sundance and then it is not their intention to be seen uh, mm. in theaters but to be seen online. Okay. I mean, you have a good number. I'm excited yeah. about it. All the ones that are at Sundance, I think I'll go and see. <laughs> yeah. You'll be able to see them. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, so I think I have my list. I know what music I want to see. Do you think we could get Yasmin to come on the show uh, uh, <clears throat> on Friday morning? Yeah, that would be a possibility. Yeah. I'd love yeah, to meet Yasmin. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I might just yeah. put might me on the spot, but yeah, I think you probably do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. I know Stacey Pottinger and Barbie Banks are working hard to get us some people to come in for that Friday morning mm-hmm. of True False Weekend. So we'll Happy. see. But uh, thank you all so much for coming in. My second guest today have been True False Film Fest programmer Janelle Augustine and the Fest's music director Martin Camus and its art installation director Duncan Binboidel. The True False Film Fest runs from March the 5th to 8th all over down downtown Columbia. The full schedule for this year's Film Fest lineup is out tomorrow evening and passes at all levels are still available. And all of those you can find online and you can buy them at truefalse.org. And you can also see all the information about their music acts. It's a really great music page on the website and all the art installations. Thank you all so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts and I'm Diana Moxon. As usual, we'll end the show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. Columbia has two new theatrical productions opening this weekend. At Talking Horse Theatre, the first play in their Year of the Woman is the Green Book Wine Club Train Trip, written by Kansas City's Michelle Tyreen Johnson. Set in mid-Missouri, the play focuses on five friends who board a train in Kansas City for a trip to various wineries and a mysterious detour to 1940s segregated Boonville. Showtime is 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets are $17 and the play continues next weekend. At Columbia Entertainment Company, the musical comedy Legally Blonde is at its opening weekend. Showtime is 7.30 plus a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $14. The Mizzou New Play Series has four performances this weekend, tonight and tomorrow at 7.30, plus two 2pm matinees tomorrow and Sunday. The series features 26 new plays in total, ranging from silly to serious, and each performance features different plays. Tickets cost $7. The Odyssey Chamber Music Series presents a Baroque Valentine at first. Baptist Church at 7pm tonight. Tickets are available on the door and the cost is $20. And at the Blue Note tonight, Dr. Gervegas performed the music of Prince and the Revolution's Purple Rain. Showtime is 9.30 and tickets are 10. Tomorrow morning at 11am, there is a closing reception with awards at the Columbia College Galleries for its annual high school art show. And at the Boone History and Culture Centre's Mont Mini Gallery, there is an opening reception for Breaking Patterns, a reflection of female artists related to the University of Missouri's School of Visual Studies. That reception is from 2 till 5 tomorrow afternoon and is free and open to all. And Saturday night, the Schwag play the music of the Grateful Dead at the Blue Note with support from Stone Sugar Shakedown. At concert starts at 8.30 and tickets are $10. Sunday afternoon, the Air and Parks Trio featuring Billy Hart and Ben Street play two shows at Murray's at 3.30 and 7. And that's part of the We Always
Cowboys Swing Jazz Series. Tickets cost from $28 if any are still available. Monday evening, the University Concert Series presents the Russian National Ballet Swan Lake at Jesse Hall. That starts at 7 and tickets cost from $20. And Ragtag Cinema continues to celebrate Black History Month with a series of films under the umbrella of Black Independence. This week's film is Medicine for Melancholy, directed by Barry Jenkins. A 24-hour glimpse at the potential relationship of two young San Franciscans dealing with the conundrum of being a minority in a rapidly gentrifying city. The film shows on Tuesday and Thursday next week at 7 p.m. Next Wednesday, curator and art historian Joan Stack is giving a free lecture at Ellis Library about a selection of 20th century editorial cartoons that address the issue of African-American voting rights. And Mystery Science Theatre 3000 Live comes to Jesse Hall with the great cheesy movie Circus Tour starring the original host Joel Hodgson. Tickets cost from $30 from the University Concert Series and the show starts at 7. Next Thursday is a super busy night in the arts. At the George Caleb Bingham Gallery, there is a reception for the MFA Showcase exhibit from 4.30 till 6.30. For anyone with an interest in ceramics, there's a free lecture at 3pm by visiting scholar and artist Douglas Dawson called First Art, Two and a Half Thousand Years of African Ceramics. His talk will be in the university's Fine Arts Building Ceramic Studios. At the Whitmore Recital Hall, Mizzou New Music presents a free concert by the Kator Diotima String Quartet. Their concert starts at 7.30. Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice opens at William Woods University's Main Stage Theatre next Thursday. Evening showtime is 7.30. At Stevens College, the first of four performances of the annual Dance Company concert is next Thursday. Tickets cost from $18 and that starts at 7.30. In Jefferson City, the Little Theatre is performing Ken Ludwig's Sherwood's Sherwood, The Adventures of Robin Hood at the Miller Performing Arts Centre. And that also opens next Thursday. And finally, if eating and drinking is more your pace, head to the Columbia Art League for Let Them Eat Art, the annual pairing of local chefs and exhibited artworks. The fundraiser runs from 6 till 8 p.m. and tickets are $35 and include tapas and drinks. Thank you so much for listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon and Eric Farigo very kindly sitting in for Mike Hagan on the soundboard. I'll be back next week with more arts chat and sneaky peeks behind the mid-Missouri arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia.